Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, your, your name is holy, and you have done a mighty thing for us. We thank you so much for the plan of salvation that you have brought to bear on this broken, sinful, fallen, rebellious, wicked world. We are the rebels, or we were. You are a God of love, a God who has elected to show mercy and kindness and compassion and grace to so many from every generation all the way back to Adam. Lord, please forgive us when we sit in judgment over you for this kindness. Forgive us when we expect that you should be doing something more for a race of creatures who has declared war on you and refuses to submit to you, refuses to love you or obey you or worship you. Forgive us that we, we want more from you. We're not content to be plucked out of the fire. We say, why not pluck some more out of the fire? Oh God, have mercy. We confess to you, Lord, that it's because we don't have a full view of our sinfulness or the sinfulness of humanity. We don't fully grasp the depth of the rebellion of a creature against uh, their creator. We don't understand the, the breadth of the evil that has been wrought against you by the human race. And so we, we question your justice. Oh, God, have mercy. And yet, Lord, I know that your heart breaks. You have made us a little lower than the angels, and your desire is to crown us above all that you have made. And we have forfeited that place as a race. I know your heart breaks for Israel. All day long, you hold out your hands to a stubborn and stiff-necked people. They missed the coming of their Messiah. Not all, but most missed it. Thank you, Lord, that the day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of your name. And no one will be sitting over just judgment in you in that day we will with thankful hearts throw our crowns before the throne and worship our sovereign king the lamb who is a king the lamb who is a lion help me today lord to preach and help us to receive your word. And help us to rejoice in the good thing that you are doing. And help us to rejoice in the hope that we have in a future 
which is filled with promise and hope and resurrection and eternal life because you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die in our place to do what Israel couldn't do, reconcile you to some from every nation. Oh God, you are awesome. Now help us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, I endeavor to preach the first 32 verses of Romans 11. That's a lot. Uh, I will not be preaching verses 33 through 36, which is actually the climax of all three chapters. Um, I just want to point it out to you. That's where, after reflecting on election, do you know what Paul does? He just can't help it. He bursts out in worship. I want to reiterate something I've said every week. We have much patience for anyone who's struggling to understand election. Much, much patience for anyone who's struggling emotionally with the doctrine of election. There's no hurry here. There's no hurry. And yet, at the same time, I would be remiss as a preacher not to direct you to the glory of the doctrine of election. The, 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 the wonderful beauty of it that God actually saved some of us. He didn't need to do that. And that our, our salvation is secure in His choice of us and not in our choice of Him. If it depended on my choice of Him, I have some bad days. And if I could throw off so great a salvation, I would. But praise be to God that my salvation is secure in the hand of God, not secure in my own hand. So I just want to encourage you with that. At the same time, take your time to wrestle with this and to, to grapple with the emotional implications. I know we all have loved ones who don't yet believe. And some of them may never. That is heartbreaking. That's how we started many months ago in chapter 9. My heart breaks. I'm grieving. But we end at the end of chapter 11 rejoicing and worshiping the God who saves some. Of which we are numbered. Now why choose to keep you for an hour <laughs> to go through Romans 11? Why hurry? Why not just take three or four weeks to do this? We could. Why? why? Now, first of all, it's, it's my kindness to you. I think we've been in the doctrine of election long enough. Now, that's not a good reason though. The reason, if that was the reason, then that's not a good reason. But the reason actually is, I think that misunderstanding abounds in these chapters, in chapter 11 especially, because we chop it up into small bits that aren't meant to be understood in isolation from the whole. We actually need all 32 verses to make sense of any one of those verses. That's why we just have to say, God, we want to know. We want to understand election. We are here. We have nothing this pressing or, or pressing us to leave and get out of here so that we can do something more important than understanding your cosmic eternal plan of redemption that you established before you said let there be light and you will be, bring to pass when the Lord Jesus descends from heaven. There's nothing you have planned today more important than understanding this. And so we're going to look at all 32 verses. I'm going to do everything I can be, do to be concise and clear, but let God have his time this morning. 
This is an amazing chapter of the Bible, and if we misunderstand it, then we misunderstand all of 9 to 11. We misunderstand the relationship of the church and and the nation of Israel. We misunderstand our own place as Gentiles in the church, and all of these things can have devastating consequences. So, So we toil to understand to the glory of God. So, with that in mind, this passage can be divided into three sections. The first section is the first ten verses, and here we discover that God's rejection of Israel is partial. The next major section runs from Romans 11, verse 11 to 24. And here we discover that God's rejection of Israel is temporary. And then the last section is Romans 11, 25 to 32. And here Paul lays out with great clarity the mystery of God's election. So hopefully by the time we get done, these three will understand not just Israel's place in God's redemptive plan, but also the whole mystery of redemption, uh, the mystery of God's election and how it is, what's our role in this? Because most of today is going to be really focused on Israel, but we focus on Israel to understand our place in God's plan of redemption. That's what we'll see in that third section. Let me just pray again that God would help us to understand this and then let's get to it. Oh God, help us to understand this. This is so amazing that you have written this down and and put it right in front of us and I pray help us to understand it. And God, please lead us into worship. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. These first two sections divide really neatly. So in, in each section, verses 1 to 10 and then 11 through 24, there's five parts in both. So you have the question, the answer, the explanation, the illustration, and the summary. So Paul's going to ask a question, he's going to give us the answer, then he's going to explain his answer, and then he's going to give us an illustration to help us to comprehend what he's trying to, to teach us, and then he's going to sum it all up. He does that twice, once for the first section and then the Same pattern for the second section. So this first section is that God's rejection of Israel is partial. Another way of saying that is God has rejected part of the nation of Israel, but not all of the nation of Israel. God's rejection of Israel is partial. Let's start with the question, the first part of verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected His people? It's a good question. That's where we ended last week. You'll notice I'm not taking a lot of time to review the last many weeks. You have to go back and review. If you're visiting us, well, you just have to jump in right here. We're talking about has God rejected Israel today? Has God rejected the nation of Israel? Those are his people. We're talking about ethnic Israel. It's the nation that God entered into a covenant with. The only nation in the history of the world that God has entered into a covenant with. He's entered into a covenant with people, 
but no other nation but Israel. And the question then is, has God rejected his people? Before we give the answer, I, want, I just want to fill you in on why this is such a crucial question for us as Christians. What does it matter to us if God's rejected Israel? Well, it matters deeply. Because if God has rejected Israel, it means that God is a God who can break unconditional promises. And a God who can break unconditional promises is not a God who gives us any kind of security at all in our own salvation. If God can make unconditional promises to the nation of Israel and say, actually, you didn't read the fine print. You know what? I did make you these unconditional promises, but I kind of crossed my fingers and held them behind my back. So sorry for your luck. You, you rejected Jesus. Therefore, all those unconditional promises are off the table. You didn't read the fine print. You, you rejected me, therefore I reject you. Does that sound like our God? Our God is the God who saves people who have rejected him. So, so if God rejected his people, then we're all very much afraid for our souls and our eternal lives. We can't trust God. It's a big question. So I ask, has God rejected his people? That's the question. The answer, by no means. Absolutely not. God forbid it. In the strongest possible terms, says Paul, you cannot say that of God because that mis, uh, mischaracterizes who he is. It maligns his character. It says something about God that is just not true. God would never, ever do that. God is constantly reaching out to people who reject him. That's the answer. Now, how does Paul explain this? The last part of verse, C, uh, verse 1, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So right away, Paul is saying this. Look, if God had rejected his people, I'm not a Christian because I'm an Israelite. Now, I know what we, we like to do. We say, well, Paul was an Israelite. Maybe ethnically he still was, but he's, a, he's part of a new thing now. Paul's gotten on board with a new plan of salvation. The, the, the old plan of salvation was like the sinking Titanic and he got off of that nation of Israel and he jumped into the church, therefore he's saved. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying God has not rejected his people. He has not rejected me. I am ethnically an Israelite and God's unconditional promises to the nation of Israel are still in effect in my life. That's what he's saying. So we need to stop thinking about Israel and the church as two different ships. One is sinking, the other is not. As many of Jews that can jump from the sinking ship of Israel into the church will be saved. That's not good theology. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's God's unconditional love and favor toward Israel that he will not let go of, that is the hope, of Israel. Now, how does he save people? Through Jesus Christ. We're not going to rewrite the book of Romans. Keep going. Paul, as one member of the remnant, remember we've been talking about remnant, individually elected within the nation, 
is proof that God has not rejected Israel. Let's take a look at the illustration, verses 2 through 6. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Pause there. His people is the nation of Israel. Paul is not talking about collecting individuals at this point. He's talking about national covenants. God has not rejected his national covenants with Israel. That's what this is. The focus is on corporate election here. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars, and I alone am left. They seek my life. So Elijah looks around and he says, I'm the only one left. I've been preaching to Israel for my whole career. I've just called fire down from heaven, which God graciously sent from heaven. People are still being syncretistic, meaning they might worship Yahweh on one day, but they'll worship the Baals on another day. They haven't given up their false gods. Therefore, Elijah is distraught, and he says, Israel has rejected you, God. Therefore, you better reject them. I'm the only one left. That's what Elijah says. But what does God reply to him? Verse 4. I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God says to Elijah, Elijah, you don't know what you're talking about. Number one, you're not the only one. So yes, you're one, but you're not the only one. I have preserved for myself 7,000. I have a remnant in the northern kingdom of Israel who is still receiving my corporate covenant blessing? So too, at the present time, says Paul, there's a remnant of Israelites chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Paul's point here is this. God's rejection of Israel is partial. God has preserved for himself in every generation, in Elijah's generation, in Paul's generation, in our generation, in every generation, a remnant. And to those remnant, God has individually elected each person, but to the remnant of Israelites that are individually elected, the corporate, unconditional promises of election that God has made to the nation of Israel are carried forward one generation at a time. God has not rejected his people. There's never been a time when the promises that God made to the nation of Israel have been annulled or canceled. A remnant has always carried them one generation at a time forward. Now Paul wants to make sure that we understand it's by grace. This remnant in Elijah's day, in Paul's day, in our day, and in every day, every generation, that remnant is held by God's grace. And what he's trying to say is Israel has never, not even in Elijah's day, secured the promises and blessing of God by keeping the law, which we've gone over so many times. Every generation, whether it's Abraham or David or Elijah or Paul, Every generation of Israelites who have secured God's corporate blessing have secured it by grace. Now think of the implications. So what if so many are rebelling against God? It's not their works that that secures the covenant. 
It's God's grace. Therefore, what God cut in covenant with the nation of Israel by grace cannot be annulled by works. Israel could not even throw off the covenant of blessing that God has given to them because they could not be evil enough to reject the grace of God. So gracious is God. That's good news for us. Summary then in verses 7-10. through 10. What then? Let me sum it up, says Paul. Israel, the nation, failed to obtain what it was seeking. What did it, it, it seek to attain? Eternal life and righteousness. Salvation. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. I don't have time to go into those in this, this time around. But the whole point is, it was foretold in the Old Testament Scriptures that Israel would be hardened, that they would reject God, that, they, that the nation uh, at large would reject the Messiah, but an elect within the nation would obtain it. Now what I want you to see here is what we like to do. I want to contrast what we do at this point versus what the Bible does. What we do is we see the nation of Israel, corporate covenant, right? Big picture. And then we see the elect within that group and we get our scissors out and we cut the elect out of Israel. We pick them up and we drop the elect Jews into the church. Right? That's what we do often. It, I mean, I don't know if every one of you does that. There may be elect, an elect group among you that hasn't done that. But that's traditionally what we do. We remove the elect remnant from Israel and put them in the church. What we're going to see is the exact opposite of, is true. Gentiles get put into the elect remnant of Israel. It's the exact opposite. So, so what Paul is saying here is God's rejection of the nation of Israel is partial. Yes, most of them have been rejected. But God's covenant to the nation is carried forward within the nation itself among the few. Among the remnant that generation after generation God has preserved. And that remnant is the focus of God's salvific work. Okay? Don't muddy the waters by thinking about Gentiles in the church just yet. God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been carried forward by the remnant of Israel every generation from Abraham to present day. Just stop there in your theologizing. Point number two, God's rejection of Israel is temporary. So what Paul's going to do now, we have this big group of Israel. Most of them have been hardened and have rejected God, and so God has rejected them. There's a remnant that has carried God's covenant blessings every generation. Now, Paul shifts focus from the elect, which is that first section, and now Paul is going to shift focus to the rest. What about the rest that are hardened? The nation itself. And what Paul says is, the nation itself, God's rejection of them is temporary. It's not forever. Now, we're talking in corporate language. So when we say that God's rejection of the nation of Israel is temporary, we are not saying that every individual Jew will be saved. 
But what we are saying is that the nation of Israel will be saved. In other words, God's not done with the nation. Let's, it'll make more sense as we go through. Here's the question, the beginning of verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? We've seen the word stumble at least twice, right? We see it right above in verse 9. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. David says that. So what is, and then we saw Isaiah, Paul quoted Isaiah, that they stumbled over the stumbling stone. What is this stumbling of Israel? It's already been established by Paul. We need to remind ourselves of it. The stumbling is Israel is trying to get somewhere. They're trying to achieve righteousness and eternal life. And they think that the way to do it is to keep the law. That's the stumbling stone, is that Jesus is the stumbling stone, that it's not through the law, it's through faith. They stumbled. They thought that they would be made righteous and gain for themselves eternal life by keeping the law. They were wrong. They misread their scriptures. The stumbling stone is the only way to attain what they wanted was to have faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah of Israel. Which makes sense, right? They have the sacrificial system. They have Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 basically says that Jesus is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. They put all their sins on him. He dies in their place. And he is raised back to life. That's Isaiah 53. It's in their scriptures. But they didn't see it. They wanted to earn their salvation. Rather than allowing Jesus to earn it for them. So the question is this stumble so severe and so total that they might fall? And by fall, what Paul means is, is what Israel did so severe, that is, trying to attain righteousness by works and not by faith, that God would reject them always and forever? That's what it means to fall, to fall out of covenant that God would cease his unconditional promises to the nation of Israel. Is it that severe? Let me phrase the question this way. Would God reject the nation of Israel simply because the nation of Israel rejected God? That's a profound theological question. And praise God, the answer is no. Because you and I both rejected God at one time. And he didn't reject us based on our rejection. See, if you understand who God is, this all flows a lot more easily. So is Israel's stumble so severe that they might fall? The answer, second part of verse 11, by no means. Now Paul's going to explain it. Rather, it is through their trespass that salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, this is hard to understand. This is all of a sudden, Paul, what are you saying? Well, first of all, we have to define what is a trespass. What is their trespass? It is through Israel's trespass that salvation has come to the Gentiles. Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah. That's the trespass. Now, we know there's an elect that didn't, but now we're dealing with the rest. We're dealing with the rest of Israel that did reject Jesus. 
in the days of Jesus, in the days of Paul, and every generation since then to this present day. Their trespass of Israel is any Jew that rejected Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. That's the trespass. And Paul says it's through their trespass, the rejection of Jesus, that salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now what, what in the world does this mean? How is it that when Israel rejected Jesus, that gave a, an opportunity to Gentiles to receive Jesus? You have to get inside the logic. Jesus himself said the gospel comes first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. What was the practice of Paul in his missionary journeys? He always went to the Jews first, always. He would go to a new town, and, and he would go in, and he would go into the synagogue, and he would preach the gospel. And he would be driven out of the synagogue, and where would he go? He would go to the Agora. What's the Agora? The Agora is the public meeting place of the Gentiles. The rejection of the gospel by the synagogue brought the gospel to the Agora. The rejection of Jesus by the Jews opened up a missionary impulse to get the gospel to Gentiles. And Paul is saying there's something mysterious about this that is historically circumstantial but theologically profound. If Israel had received Jesus as their Messiah, it would have been almost theologically impossible to convince Israel that Jesus came for the nations. It was the rejection of the, Jew, of the Jews to Jesus. So when, the, when Israel rejected Jesus, then it, it uh, almost coerced or it, it, it prodded the evangelists to go to the Gentiles. And all of a sudden, there was space theologically for the gospel to go out to the nations. So God says, or Paul says, God says through Paul, this trespass by the Jews was superintended by God so that God's focus of gospel would be transferred to the Gentiles. And I don't have time to go into that much more, but we need to think on that. What would have happened if every Jew accepted Jesus as the Messiah? It would have been a Jewish movement. It would have been very difficult to get it to Gentiles. Now, going to Gentiles, so the synagogue rejected Jesus, so Jesus goes through the apostles to the Gentiles. Now we're told that, that God has a purpose for that for Israel too. So as to make Israel jealous. So as Israel sees their Messiah being proclaimed and embraced by Gentiles, God says, I'm going to make my own people jealous for their own Messiah. What are you doing with our Messiah? What are you doing with our scriptures? What are you doing with our gospel? That's the hope. That's the plan. That's the answer. Now, verse 12 fills this out a little bit more. Take a look at it. Now, if their trespass, rejecting Jesus, means riches for the world because the gospel went out to the nations, and if their failure to receive the gospel means riches for Gentiles because we received the gospel, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So God has done this thing, but can you, can you just imagine a day, says Paul, 
Now that this has all happened, and now we're 2,000 years down the road, so we have the benefit of history to, to see what Paul's talking about. Can you imagine what rejoicing there would be in the church if Israel became a Christian nation? That would be awesome. That would be so wonderful, and the world would notice. Wouldn't it? If all of a sudden, the, 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 um, the whole nation of Israel became Christian, and they said that, that Jesus is their Jewish Messiah, their national hero, the Savior of the world, their God, Yahweh Himself in human form. Could you imagine if that message came through the nation of Israel? And, and that's what Paul says. How much more will Israel's full inclusion mean? It would then turn the whole world. The, the balance of the scales would tip in favor of the gospel. And you would see unbelieving Gentiles all around the world say, wow, if Israel can believe this, maybe there's something in it for us too. Verse 13, he goes on. He says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. This is perfect for us because most of these chapters are directed toward Jews. But now he's really talking to us. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. This is so, so again, crucial. Every line is crucial. Paul wants to make it clear that what we often do, cutting the remnant of Israel out of Israel and dropping them into the church is a bad theological move. And Paul just wants us to know that that's not what he's doing. When he shifted focus from bringing the gospel to Israel, and now he's an apostle to the Gentiles, he does not want us to misunderstand his vocational purpose. He has not made that shift because the, the ship of Israel is sinking, and he got off just in time onto this Gentile ship, which is falsely called the church in popular theology. He says, that's not it at all. I am an ambassador of Israel to the Gentiles for the sake of Israel. I want them to see me, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, studied under the feet of Gamaliel. I am, within the Jewish world, a, a star. Not only have I accepted Jesus Christ to be the Jewish Messiah, but I'm taking this Jewish Messiah to the Gentiles. And my deep longing and hope is that my brethren would take notice. What is Paul doing so that some of them would be saved? Paul is not going to the Gentiles because he feels that God has rejected Israel. He's not looking for the new and better thing. His hope is still for Israel. Which takes us then to verse 14. 15, sorry. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So God has rejected all but a remnant of Israel. So if their rejection has led to the gospel going out to Gentiles, which it has, what will their full acceptance mean but life from the dead? This can be understood in two ways. One we've already talked about. Imagine if the nation of Israel became a Christian nation. Well, that's going to bring about the, the, the repentance and conversion of a multitude of people all over the world. 
you would see a golden age in Christendom that we had never seen, the likes of which we had never seen before. But there's a second thing which this might mean, and I think it does. Life from the dead, when Paul usually uses words like that, he is talking about the resurrection at the end of the age. What will the inclusion of the whole nation of Israel mean, but it's time for the general resurrection of the dead? What will it mean when Israel turns to Christ? It means we are that close to the end. It means that Jesus Christ is coming back. And if you read other passages like Zechariah 14, for example, Jesus Christ returns, and then there's this mass conversion of the nation of Israel as they look on the one whom they have pierced and repent and convert. And so you might think that this is exactly what Paul has in mind. So for a time... God has allowed the nation of Israel, all but a remnant, to be hard. So the gospel will go out to the Gentiles. How great it would be for the Jews to come back on a nationwide level back into the faith. It would be great for the whole world. More than that, Paul says, it tells us something about the salvific calendar. The great day of the Lord has come. He's setting up a a, a theological calendar for us here. It'll mean resurrection from the dead. To wrap all of this up, it means Israel is only temporarily rejected for the sake of the Gentile conversion. But Israel, as a nation, will be re-included before the end of salvation history. God is not done with His people. You know what's amazing? Uh, Where are the Moabites, the Girgashites, the Perizzites? Where are the Edomites, the Hittites? Where, Where are the Assyrians? You might be able to trace their lineage, but that dynasty is long gone. Where are the Babylonians? It is unbelievable that although in 586 B.C. Israel was whittled down to a few thousand, now, 2,000 years after Christ, God is gathering them together from the four corners of the earth and giving them the very parcel of land that He promised to their forefather, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is God done with Israel? Is that mere historical coincidence? How did they survive? People have been trying to kill them and snuff out the nation every generation since Abraham. And they're still here. And not only are they still here, tucked away in Russia and and the United States and and wherever else, they have their own land back. We're getting very near the end. Because in the Old Testament, God says, I'm going to gather you together. I'm going to give you back the land. We're very close to the nation calling out in saving faith on their Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the illustration. Two illustrations. The first one in verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. This is so, I love this because it's so simple. The, the dough, the, the lump of dough is the nation of Israel of every age, from Abraham to the end of the age. If that's the nation of Israel, you take a bit of it and you say that bit is holy, well then the whole lump is holy. That's going back to Levitical logic, the book of Leviticus. You offer the first fruits the first portion of the dough, and in giving that to the priest, you, you sanctify the whole lump. 
What Paul is saying is how theologically is it consistent with everything we know about God and everything we know about the Bible to say that God has rejected Israel? If the first fruits, if the, the, the first little bit of the nation is holy, then the whole lump is holy. Now what is that little bit? It's either the remnant in every age or it's the patriarchs. There's a greater parallel with the illustration to come with the patriarchs, so I'll go with the patriarchs. If the patriarchs received unconditional promises, I think this is the way to read it, then the whole nation's going to receive the fulfillment of those unconditional promises. God's not going to renege on unconditional promises. He's going to see it through. Now, you have to go back about six weeks or five weeks and remember there's corporate election and individual election. Can't redo that. But on a national level, there's going to be a nation of Israel in the new heavens and the new earth. And there's going to be a mass conversion of the nation before we're done at the return of Christ. That's the point. The unconditional promises to the nation will save the nation, even though not every Israelite will be individually saved. And no, we're not talking about putting a remnant in the church. It just goes against the whole force of this entire chapter. Okay? So that's the first one. Now the second illustration, which he then expands to the end of verse 21, is in the second part of verse 16. And this one also is very helpful. And if the root is holy, then so are the branches. The root are the patriarchs. We're going to see that explicitly coming up. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made unconditional promises to them. If that is true, then the branches that come from them are also holy. What are the branches? The Jews. What is the tree, therefore? The nation of Israel. Roots, patriarchs. The tree, the nation of Israel. The branches, individual Jews. Okay. Now, let's take a, a closer look at this illustration. Before I read these verses, I want you to notice something. Paul never uses the word church. We will muddy the water if we try to understand the relationship between Israel and the church. I will talk about the church, but this is one of our great errors. We see the church and Israel as two distinct things. They're not exactly the same thing, but there's more continuity than discontinuity. I'll get to that after we go through the illustrations. But just to note it at the front end, Paul's not saying Israel is sinking, the church is rising, get out of Israel and into the church. He never says that. So we better not say that. All right, verse 17 through to 21. If some of the branches were broken off and you, talking to Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Oh yes, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Quick word about that last part. Neither will he spare you. He's not saying you can lose your salvation. He's talking corporately to Gentiles. If the Gentiles who have received Christ get too arrogant, he'll just say, well, I'm done with the Gentiles. And there will be no more Gentile conversions. That's the warning. It's a corporate rejection, not an individual rejection. 
So he says, just don't be so smug. Don't think that, that the Gentiles have replaced Israel. Don't say, he doesn't say this, but don't say that the church, and what we mean by that is Gentiles, which is a sloppy theology. Don't say that the church has replaced Israel. Don't become arrogant. Don't start boasting. The branches don't support the root. The root supports the branches. And between the branches and the root is the trunk. So, in order to understand this, we just need to remind ourselves the roots of the patriarchs. The, the patriarchs hold these unconditional promises of the gospel, right? Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 to 3, go from your, your land, your, your country, your kindred, and your father's home to the land that I'll show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. The, the gospel's right there. You throw away that, though, and you have nothing. That's, that's the root of the gospel. So let's not start saying that, you know, God has forgotten about the root or the tree that come from that root. Because the tree that comes from that root is Isaac and Jacob. And from Jacob, the twelve. And then from that nation, which is the trunk, which never gets replaced, you have the branches, which is the individuals. The individual Jews of every age. So Paul says, yes, it's true. Some branches were cut off. And you might say thrown in the fire. They're, they're gone. There are individual Jews that don't get to share in the blessing from their natural root. Ethnically, they're, they're, they belong to Abraham, but spiritually, they're cut off from Abraham and destroyed. Paul says that's a theological fact. I've never argued that every individual Jew will be saved. But let's not go so far as to say that God chopped the whole tree down. He's cut off some branches, some Jews. And at the time of Jesus, quite a lot of those branches got cut off. But the roots are still in the ground and the trunk, which is the nation of Israel, still stands. And then, he, then he says, now you Gentiles, you're not a part of the root. You don't come from Abraham. You're not a part of the trunk. You're not a part of Israel. You're from a different nation. But God is so kind, isn't he? That he went to this wild olive tree and a whole orchard of wild olive trees, different nations. And he cut a couple of branches off of this tree and a couple of branches off of that tree and some branches off of that tree. That's all of us, Gentiles, belonging to different trees that don't go back to Abraham. But God takes some branches and he grafts them in to the tree so that the nourishment of Abraham comes up through the nation of Israel from the roots through the trunk and nourishes our Gentile branches. So far from God rejecting Israel, he has made room for Gentiles within Israel. That's very different. Now Paul says that <clears throat> we should not boast because God can cut off these other branches now, I, what I would like to tell you is, like I said, this is not about individuals losing their salvation, but God could just as easily cut off all the, the, the grafted-in branches, throw them away, and then graft back in Jews 
into their own tree. He says, in fact, theologically, that makes more sense. If you want to talk about what is the least likely thing that God would do, the least likely thing that God would do is graft you in. It is more likely that he would graft Jews in. That's what he's saying. So don't get boastful, and we cannot get boastful. Anti-Semitism in the church is just such a tragedy, a theological travesty, and sloppiness exegetically. So where is the church? Let's read the, the uh, summary, verses 22 through 24, and then I'll answer that question. Note the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, referring to Jews who were cut off. But kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Speaking corporately now to Gentiles. And even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Let me just review this graphically for you. Go to the next slide. We have two trees, let's say. I mean, the, na the trees of the nation are plentiful, a tree for every nation. But let's just deal with Israel, the, the one natural olive tree, and the nations, the wild olive tree. The patriarchs are the branches, the Jews are the, br uh, sorry, the patriarchs are the roots, the Jews are the branches. Next slide. So God has cut some of his branches off, uh, individual Jews who have rejected Jesus. And in any generation, going back to Elijah, anyone who tried to attain righteousness apart from faith was cut off of this natural olive tree. It's not just after Jesus came. In the time of Elijah, there was only 7,000 branches. Now we go on. Yeah, go to the next one. And God has cut a branch off of the wild olive tree. That's us. And he's grafted it into the natural olive tree, which is supported by the patriarchs and the nation of Israel and God's unconditional promises to Israel. Is there any more? Or is that it? Oh yeah, at the end of the age, God is going to pick up uh, the nation of Israel and graft the nation back into their own olive tree. That's what we learn. And we'll learn more about that in the third section. So where's the church in this? Is the church the wild olive branches? No, these are merely Gentiles. And the church equals Jews and Gentiles, both natural and wild branches. So you see, this analogy almost breaks down, but not totally. Is the church the olive tree? Can we go to that olive tree and say the tree was Israel, but now the tree is the church? Or could we say the tree was never Israel, the, church was all, or the tree was always the church? And some covenant theologians try to make that sleight of hand. I would say no. The tree's always the nation of Israel because God made covenant with the nation of Israel. So what is the church? The church are the wild and the natural branches that grow on the tree in the new covenant after the first coming of Christ. So if we're going to stick with the metaphor, what we have to see is the church are the branches that grow on this tree after the coming of Christ. It's a temporal distinction, not a national distinction. So there are wild branches that grow, 
because they're grafted in. And there are natural branches, that is, Jews that accept Jesus as their Messiah. They don't have to be cut off and put back in. So the church is the flourishing of the nation of Israel. But that by, is a far cry from saying that the church replaces Israel because the church then are just the blossoms on the new branches of the tree that goes all the way back through Israel's history right into the roots of the patriarchs. So you don't chop down the tree or relabel the tree. You just recognize new growth, some of it natural and some of it grafted. And that new growth after the coming of Christ is the church. But it's not an entirely new thing. Shifting metaphors for a moment, think of it this way. So this is not an illustration that Paul gives here, but in the book of Galatians, this is the illustration that Paul gives. Israel is God's elect family. Gentile Christians are adopted into the elect remnant of Israel. So we are adopted into Abraham's family, whereas Jews are born into Abraham's family. We're all children. Equal in the inheritance. Equal in value. Equal in our childhood and our status before God. But we're adopted into Abraham's family. Now this leaves the rest of Israel. So as Gentiles adopted into God's family, we have all of Israel, this is the family of, of God. Then you have the remnant that receives the inheritance. The rest are cut out of God's will, if you want to use the metaphor. They don't receive any inheritance, even though they're naturally born children. As Gentiles, we are adopted into the inheritance, which means we're adopted into the elect remnant of Israel. But this does not replace the family of God with a new family. It expands numerically the number of children in the remnant. You see what I'm saying? Not replacement, but adoption into. Grafted into. Inclusion in. Now what if you had a family with natural born children and the adopted children came in and said, we're the true children, you're not. That's ludicrous. Unless the parents have said, well, I have written some of my children out of the will for whatever reason. But the children, the natural born children and the adopted children that are in the will of the parents constitute the true family. There's no replacement going on here. There's an inclusion in, a growing in. So I hope, I hope that has been somewhat clear. Which brings us now to our third and final point. And based on all the work we've done, it should flow fairly easily. The mystery of God's election. Romans 11, verses 25 through 32. Now, before we go on, we have to understand what is a mystery. A mystery is not something that we cannot understand. That's, a, that's not the definition of mystery. Mystery is something that we would not know unless God has revealed it to us. So what Paul is about to say is, I want to share with you a mystery. I want to share with you something that God himself, Jesus personally, has revealed to me. Therefore, I speak to you with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ on this matter. This is something that is uh, evident in the Old Testament, but we would never have come to understand it without Jesus revealing it directly. That's the mystery. And 
Here, Paul is going to wrap up his entire discussion on election by saying there is a mystery to this election. What is the mystery? Let's start with verses 25 and the first part of 26. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of the mystery. Wise in your own sight. Trying to understand how Israel and the church fit together based on your own logic is trying to be wise in your own sight. Trying to read the tea leaves of history and say, well, look at what's happening is trying to figure this out by being wise in your own sight. And what Paul says is don't try to figure this out on your own. Don't come up with a, a, a theory that seems good to you. Understand what I'm writing here. Okay? So that's his warning at the very beginning, so I'll, I want to give it to us because we've all had to reconcile Israel and Christianity in some way. What is Judaism and Israel? How do they fit together? Well, stop trying to figure it out. Go to his word and see what God has said about it. Here's the mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now you see the two parts there, right? A partial hardening. God has, uh, God has, the re God's rejection of Israel is partial, verses 1 through 10. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until, that's verses 12, uh, 11 through 24, that God's rejection of Israel is temporary. Until a partial hardening, God has hardened the nation of Israel partially for a time, not forever. Until, until when? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What Paul is saying there is, remember this dynamic, right? Israel rejected the gospel, rejected their own Messiah. Therefore, it made sense to take the gospel and, and the Messiah, Israel's gospel and Israel's Messiah, to the Gentiles. So God's focus now is going to be on bringing Gentiles into salvation to graft them into that natural olive tree. That's God's redemptive focus, although there's still some natural branches. But once God has grafted every last individually elected Gentile into the tree, which is supported by the patriarchs and the covenant promises to the nation of Israel, then his focus is going to go back onto the nation of Israel. A partial hardening has come upon the nation of Israel until temporary hardening until when until God is done grafting wild olive shoots into his cultivated olive tree and then verse 26 all Israel will be saved then all Israel will be saved who is this all Israel there's lots of options here all Israel is every individual elect person Jew and Gentile that's an option I, I reject that option because it just flies in face of the way Paul has been using the word Israel through this whole three chapters. Through all three chapters, whenever he talks about Israel, he's talking about the nation of Israel. He's not talking about Gentile Christians. And immediately preceding this, Israel is Israel, the nation. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. 
But after all of the Gentiles have come in, then the focus will be back on all Israel. The all Israel there, he's talking in corporate election terms. After every individual Gentile is saved, then the nation of Israel will be saved. The nation of Israel will be saved. So this mystery is sequential. Step number one in God's salvific plan since the coming of Jesus. Take the gospel and take the good news of the Jewish Messiah to Israel. All but a remnant will reject him and reject the gospel. Step two, take Israel's gospel and Israel's Messiah to the nations as a pure act of grace to the nations because God promised Abraham, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So take the gospel to them. And in so doing, save a remnant of Jews in every generation who see what's happening with their Messiah and their gospel among the nations. Make Israel jealous. Step three, after all of the Gentiles have come in, God's going to focus back on the nation of Israel and through some revelation, which I believe is the return of Christ or things that happen right close to the return of Christ, so I don't want to be dogmatic on that, but near the end of this age, because remember, all the Gentiles have come in, God is going to do something to convince the nation. And I think he's going to do it so convincingly that every Jew in the nation at that time will say, we have missed our own Messiah. We have missed our own gospel. And the nation en masse will become Christian. Which is not to say they become Gentile or or they get off of their own ship to jump on to the, the ship which is the church. They take what is rightly theirs which has been given to us as a gift. And they receive their Jewish Messiah. So all Israel is the nation at a point in time in history which is still in our future. And then the nation will be saved. And we see that this point that I made is made clear as we continue on in verse 26. As it is written, the deliverer, that's Jesus, will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is how I understand this verse. Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives in glory. The deliverer comes from Zion. And he's going to banish ungodliness from Jacob. What's ungodliness? Rejection of the Jewish Messiah. And he will establish his covenant with them. What covenant? The covenant that he's been making since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant properly understood with Moses. The covenant through David. The new covenant promised by Jeremiah. The new covenant written in the blood of Jesus Christ, which is not new in the sense of brand new, but is the fulfillment of all these previous covenants. Then he will establish his covenant as promised in the book of Jeremiah with his people, his nation. And he will take away the sins of the nation of Israel. So now we get to the summary. Verses 28 through 32. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. 
That is, they've rejected the gospel so that God could focus on Gentiles for a time. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God could no more reject the nation of Israel than he could reject Abraham. So the nation is elect, period. They can reject Jesus. They can reject God all they want. God will never reject them. And he has sustained them in remnant form through every generation. But before the curtain of history falls, the nation will believe in their Messiah. Because they're elect. For the gifts, verse 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They cannot throw off the grace and kindness of God even with their own rejection and sinfulness. For just as you, Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, that is, the focus shifted from Israel to the nations for a time, so they too now have been disobedient while God has been focusing on the nations in order that by His mercy shown to you they may also now receive mercy. The focus is going to go back to Israel. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. That could be a whole sermon, but let me just put it in these words. In the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be one people of God from every nation. Israel will lead the nations in triumphant procession in the worship of their Messiah, which has become our Messiah and our God. Israel will be there as a nation. Canada will be there as a nation. Egypt will be there as a nation. One family, all sharing the same blessings, but God will not undo Israel's national identity for our sake. And in fact, the great glory of the new heavens and the earth is that kings from all the nations come with all their national splendor into the capital of Israel and deposit their spoil at the feet of the king of kings and the Lord of lords because the king of the Jews is the king of the nations. So Israel will not be more special than the nations in the new heavens and the new earth, but they will be the central nation that leads all the nations in worship. Because they are the nation through whom the families of the earth have been blessed. So, I was saying something different. (laughs) In light of that, one of the benefits for us as Gentiles belonging to other nations is that there will be no occasion for Israel, the central nation in God's salvific plan, to boast over us. That's what these verses are about. Because just as we were not, uh, God did not cut a covenant with us, and we were disobedient, but God had mercy and grafted us in, so also the very branches of, the, of their own tree Israel itself rejected God and were disobedient for a time and had to be shown mercy. So the same principles at work, whether you're in the nation of Israel, the nation of Canada, the nation of Egypt, the nation of Babylon, doesn't matter. Every nation has been disobedient, even Israel, and every nation had to be uh, saved by grace through faith in God's loving kindness. So although Israel is central, they are by no means supreme. 
And that's part of God's kindness to us in the age that we now live. That Israel is demonstrating her equal need as all the other nations for God's benevolent kindness and mercy and grace. Can you imagine if they had received Jesus as a nation? There would be great occasion for boasting, wouldn't there? At least the temptation thereof. God is so awesome when you, when you can just step back and see it, which is why Paul moves on to worship. So conclusions for today then. God rejected Israel partially. There's always been a remnant of Jews in the church. And even before the coming of Jesus, there's always only been a remnant of Jews who weren't cut off from God because only a remnant from Abraham forward has ever received God's grace by faith. God's rejection of Israel is only temporary. The nation of Israel will be saved before the curtain of history falls. That's a biblical promise. And we see it, the seeds of that already coming to fruition in the fact that there is a nation of Israel in the world today. Even though that nation continues to be apostate. I want, I want to just mention that. I'm not saying that everything that Israel does, we as, as Christians should embrace. They're still an apostate nation. They're an apostate nation who is rejecting their own Messiah, and that's the depth of God's love and grace to them, is he's gathering them together anyway. So we don't, do not need to embrace the things that Israel is believing or the things that Israel is doing politically to say that God's not done with Israel. They're currently apostate, but by God's grace they exist. Thirdly, the mystery of God's election is his sequential and shifting focus of redemption. First on the nation of Israel, then on the nations of the world, then back on the nation of Israel. And the last thing I want to say, I'll pray and I'll close our time off. Even when God was focusing on Israel, and then even when God was focusing on the nations, he has always saved some from the other group. So in the Old Te Testament, he's always c continuing to save some Gentiles, like Ruth, like Rahab, and s others. So God is focusing on Israel, saving some Gentiles. Now, he's focused on the nation, saving some Jews in the church age, if we could call it that. Then when he focuses back on Israel, I think it's going to be that climactic moment when he gathers all the nations together and Israel is there saying, we missed it, but now we know he is king. Jesus Christ is Lord. If you have questions, I'd love to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for being attentive. This is work. We're working to understand. Thank you. I pray that you would be blessed by this. Let me pray for you. Oh, Heavenly Father, help us to understand what you're doing. Uh, I pray that we would understand and believe and cherish your plan of salvation because we are the, the wonderful recipients. And once you make unconditional promises, you never break your promises. Forgive us for ever thinking that you would or even that you could. We pray, Lord, for the redemption of Israel. Save the nation. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.